Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. Today we're taking a little journey through the neurodivergent looking glass. Tracy Winter, a neurodivergent coach specializing in gifted adults. We're going to have a chat about neurodivergence, being gifted and being different, and the importance in that context of being mirrored and being seen for your authentic self by others. We'll also talk about the differences between coaching and therapy and what they can offer clients. And we'll have a brief chat about what happens when coaches and therapists spark transformation in their clients, some of the benefits and some of the potential pitfalls. This episode was recorded a few months ago and unfortunately the sound quality isn't the best, uh, which we apologise for, but we do hope that you'll enjoy the quality of the conversation. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Positive Disintegration Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. Hello, Emma. How are you? I'm great. I could be better. Oh, Chris, what's wrong? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to complain. I, In fact, don't even let me start complaining, but it just feels like I'm too busy and I don't have time to do fun things anymore. Oh, you're too important now. That's the problem. You matter to too many people. I wouldn't say that. You're doing good work. You matter to too many people. That's what I reckon. They definitely want my time. And it's okay. I'm not, I don't, I didn't mean to complain, but I just feel too busy. That's all right. Life has its ups and downs and you're allowed to complain when it, you know, has a down or you get busy. And it's probably on, on point for our guest because uh, our guest is a neurodiversity coach and um, I'm guessing we're going to be talking about some of the ups and downs of neurodiversity and being a 2E adult. That's right. I'm sure that we will talk about the ups and downs. For our listeners, our guest is Tracy Winter. Tracy is a neurodiversity coach specializing in 2E adults. She holds a PhD in human development and a PCC credential from the International Coaching Federation. Welcome to the podcast, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, welcome, Tracy. We're so glad to have you. Um, let me start by saying how we met, because I always like to do that when it's somebody who is my friend on the podcast. So we met five years ago at Sing when it was in Naperville or Chicago, Illinois, for reference there, because it's Naperville, not super well known. But it's a, it's a suburb of Chicago, and that's where we met. And then a year later, we met in Naperville again at the Dabrowski Congress in 2018. But you came to this session that I did in 2017 about the inner experience of giftedness. And I was really just trying to figure things out at that time. And I already knew about you, actually, because, well, Frank Falk was on your committee. Right. So he had already clued me in and I feel like I feel like he had shown me uh, one of your chapters because I was working on my dissertation. And so it's hard to believe that that was already five years ago. It really is. That's yes. Yeah, I did hear your inner experience and I was listening to your more recent um, conversations about your story and how you got here and the work that you've done to be where you are right now. And I keep thinking of that presentation that you did that very vulnerable and revealing experience of here's here's where I am now and here's what's been going on and you were really 
you know, working through all of that. Yeah, I was. There's there's no doubt. I remember that session like crying at the beginning. I was like tearful at the beginning of that session because my emotions were just so overwhelming, which is it's never great when you're starting a presentation <laughs> and you're like, hang on, I just need to stop crying. <laughs> I mean, it sets the but tone. What are you going to do? You know, right. It set the tone. <laughs> yeah. I was going to talk about uh, overexcitability. So there you go. Yeah, it was on display. Absolutely. So tell us about how you first came to Dabrowski's theory. We like to start off with that question. I know you like to start out with that question because I am a avid listener as well as getting to be here today. That's why it's a little fangirling for me. And I'm I'm ashamed to say, like, I don't know. I didn't have like this amazing transformative experience like it seems like many people had. I've gotta say, I went to my first thing conference in 2006. And I went to a pre-conference session with Sue Jackson. I got to believe that must have been the introduction of like just the name and the concept um, or right around there. At some point, I, you know, emailed Bill Tillier and he sent me his archive of what, what he had at the time. So I've got all of those readings and, you know, was fascinated. It definitely figured into my um, research when I was doing my dissertation and into my work now in terms of intensities and the overexcitabilities in particular. And occasionally I have somebody coming along who's, who's moving levels and it's really helpful to have that framework to see, but like, yeah, I, I remember really being validated that I didn't like rice pudding because of the texture parts of sensual OE. That's what I remember. So clearly very deeply transformed. Well, that's okay. It's, it's fine that you don't remember the exact moment when you (laughs) discovered the theory. We can't always expect people to have that clearly in their mind. Well, what matters is that you came to it eventually and that you're that you came to the gifted field. But mm-hmm. that's actually the next question that we had for you is to hear a bit about your journey as a twice exceptional adult. Well, so it's actually kind of the family business in a little way. Um, I was identified as gifted when I was four and my sister was identified at the same age. Um, my dad's gifted as well. Um, my mom is very, very bright and puts up with the rest of us. And she is not, um, doesn't have any kind of neurodivergence. She's the most like typical brain I've ever met. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful to watch it. So I grew up in this family with this mishmash of things, but my mom, um, once she learned about giftedness became the gifted and talented coordinator for a school district. Um, she created the program and ran it for 20 years and got a graduate degree in it. And I thought I was doing something entirely different. I popped around a couple of different places. When I came to graduate school, I thought I went to graduate school to study organizational psychology. That was my plan. Do psychology without as much of the messy people stuff. And yet, like every time I went to do coursework or a paper or think about anything, I just kept getting drawn to the concept of gifted adults and what's going on there. So that's where I ended up. That's why I have a PhD in human development instead of organizational psychology is that it just kept pulling me. It's the thing that was driving me. It was the thing that I was interested in. Um, And my biggest fear about doing a PhD, in fact, was losing interest somewhere in the middle, right? So this really kept driving and and doing that. Then I realized, oh, I don't have a way to practice really. Like I don't, I'm not gonna have a clinical psych degree. So what do I do? Well, my school also had a um, new coaching program. This is in 2008 or 2009, I got credentialed for the first time with the International Coaching Federation. So I became a coach. 
And I put those two things together because um, those are the things that I think about and I think are helpful. Um, and that's what I've been doing. Um, it's really ramped up in the last couple of years. Um, it's, it's become very fun, especially as there's so much activity in this community that either I wasn't aware of before or it, I think it's ramping. So there's so many other people I can talk to about, about all these things. But I really think um, coaching can be a, a helpful thing for 2E adults, um, especially like therapy can be helpful for some things and coaching can be helpful for other things. Like how do I actually get along in the world given that it's not made for me? So yeah, thank you for that intro, uh, Tracy. And I'm glad that you brought up your your doctoral program, because I want to ask you about your dissertation. It's really interesting because you talked about being seen. And I wonder if you could um, say something about that for our listeners. Sure. Um, and this actually, you know, feeds into my coaching work as well. But what I was really interested in is what happens when you get reflections from other people um, that form your self-concept. Like everybody and their mother says, be yourself, just be yourself. Um, and I thought to myself, well, when I've been myself, that hasn't always turned out well for me. So what's that about? And then I've had a couple of experiences of people seeing me, meeting Sue Jackson was one, seeing me and like bringing something out in me I didn't know was there even. But when it was came out, it felt like me. So it's sort of seeing people seeing you the way that you see yourself and having that, just having that connection between the two, the balance. Um, and I think what happens a lot of the time with gifted folks and 2E folks is um, we get funhouse mirror reflections because most of the world doesn't understand the like the experience that we're having, right? Um, they don't they don't have the intensities, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so we get these funhouse mirror reflections saying, well, you know, that's weird or that's not right or that idea is crazy or whatever it might be, and because it's self-concept, this is how self-concept actually works. We do integrate some of that into our understanding of ourselves. And that, especially as a kid, when you're like soaking everything up, um, can can take hold. And that's where we end up with the conversations that we have in adulthood about um, imposter syndrome, perfectionism, um, not not being able to get along at work, you know, not being heard, all of those kinds of things. So my research showed that I actually went into my research trying to show what happens when you do get seen. Um, that was my plan. It turns out there wasn't very much of that to be to be explored with my participants. It, there was a lot to be explored with what happens when you don't get seen. So I covered that both ways and, and came up with two ways that, that you can be not seen. One is not seen, which is like you're just ignored part of the woodwork. And then misseen, which is you're seen for something that is not congruent with yourself. Um, and a lot of my participants talked about how they sort of voluntarily chose as they grew to be not seen because it was safer socially. Um, you don't get those funhouse mirror reflections because you're not putting your actual self out there. Um, so it's it's sad, but also it's like anything else when it comes to awareness, then you can do some different things about it. It's very interesting to me because there's a relationship there with authenticity, of course, you mm -hmm. know, um, that if you're being your authentic self and you're getting that funhouse mirror reflection, 
you're going to go away from authenticity and begin masking. Mm-hmm, and exactly. this is something that I see all the time in people I work with, in friends, uh, you know, just all around me is, I feel like right now it's um, kind of a, a time where a lot of people are becoming aware of masking as a thing. And they're like, okay, well, now how do I figure out who I am and stop doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the research in self-concept actually shows that when you self-present in a way that is counter to your natural way of being, it's actually um, shown to produce more depression, anxiety, and internalization of that mask that you're putting on, so to speak. Um, so it's really detrimental to health, but so is being bullied. So it's a, it's a hard balance, and it's, it's really a discussion to have about the authenticity is so important. And also finding places where you can be authentic and be seen. Um, with a straight mirror, not a funhouse mirror, is really key, which is one of the reasons I love talking to you. Agreed. It's one of the reasons why I love talking with you, too. Because, yeah, I, I think that we can be good mirrors for each other, which is so important. Yeah, I'm grateful for that. One thing that I wonder about is, you know, I think back to when I was young, and I it seemed like people easily saw me as gifted. Like, I I'm not one of the people who... Like, I, I do know a lot of adults who didn't get seen for being gifted and mm-hmm. until they were adults. And, you know, that was a real struggle. And I, I feel like I was seen as gifted growing up, but I wasn't seen for my whole self. You know, I wasn't seen as 2E, I guess, like twice exceptional. Um, you know, I am an ADHD or two, and that aspect of me was not seen and then when I was an adult, I feel like people easily saw me as disordered and having that kind of exceptionality. And then the gifted label kind of fell away in adulthood, and I stopped even considering that. So I think that being seen as something that, you know, can look a lot of different ways and kind of change, too. Oh, absolutely. And as you evolve and as you become different people over the course of your lifetime, you know, different versions of yourself. Which is which is pretty in line with Dabrowski, right? Um, I think right. I know he I know that auto psychotherapy is important in Dabrowski, and I was listening to a recent episode that you had that you were really talking about that a lot. I think it was with Rachel Fell, and it occurred to me that's really interesting. And I know that we need those reflections. I think that there's a part where there's a place to either smooth the way or improve the experience of, you know, working through these levels if you have a community as well. Yes, I think that's a huge deal. And that's part of why I've been so interested in building a community of people who Mm -hmm. can support each other and be good mirrors for each other, because it's just, it's not the kind of thing you can necessarily count on in the wild, No, just in people that you meet and happen to know in your life. Yeah. But I agree with you that the get sort of gifted label sort of falls off as a as an adult. And I didn't get diagnosed as ADHD until I was halfway through my PhD program. So it was a whole new, like, really? Huh. Oh, that's why I never do anything until the night before. That's why I can't find my key, you know, all of the usual things. But it really it, right. it changed my lens on myself. Yeah, it helps. I mean, you need to have like the whole picture of who you are. And so if you're only seeing certain parts, then... You know, you're missing out on the other parts and it's, we're all, I mean, we're all really complex people mm-hmm. with many different sides to us. So you just made me think about 
the clients. And I've had a couple of clients who like had just found out they were gifted or didn't know they were gifted. And so they're getting these reflections for me that they're like, that feels right. And I've never had that thought about myself before, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think it can be really helpful to help them uncover that part of themselves and integrate that part of themselves. And, you know, as, as they go on their journey evolution. Right. It's all about that personal evolution. Tracy, I was just going to ask you when you were talking about, you know, the kind of things being misseen and unseen brings up. Um, I was actually thinking about a video I did on the triangle of loneliness because someone asked me on my YouTube channel to explain sort of emotional loneliness and I had to sit down and have a real good hard think about how I experienced it. And a lot of the things that you're talking about, about you're not being seen for who you are or being seen as something else, that there were big factors that played into that. So I want to ask you, you know, what is your take on the consequences of what happens to people when they're not seen or they're not mirrored or they're misseen for who they are? I think loneliness is definitely one of the things that happens. Many of the people that I talked to in my research had found at least one person who did see them like on a regular basis. And that was like a treasure. Um, a few had not, and they seemed sort of resigned to this is just the way it's going to be, um, which was which was hard to witness. But I do think loneliness comes into it because if people are constantly reflecting back to you something that doesn't jive with the way you understand yourself, it's hard to stand there and, and be alone in your thoughts. Um, and, it, and it provokes that loneliness. It's not, it's not necessarily the good kind of alone because we do need community. That we're human creatures and that's part of it. So it can feel very lonely just going day to day is what I heard from my participants because they're not able to be fully authentic. They're not, they're not with people who get them. They just get them. Like there's not even a better way to say that, I don't think. And it can be incredibly lonely. Which is kind of an important concept because when we think about loneliness in general and feeling like we don't have anyone, we, we tend to think of that as not having people around us, like you know, people who maybe don't have a support network or don't have friends, but it's entirely possible to be out of step with everybody, even when you've got a functioning social network or even when you've got people around you who love you because you simply don't feel seen by them and it sort of makes you question that connection so I think that's an important concept is like people can feel desperately lonely even when they're surrounded by people I mean absolutely and one really interesting thing that came out of my research I thought was that two of my participants didn't really resonate with the concept of being seen um, both of them had been in magnet programs all the way through they had never felt out of sync um, sort of all of those traditionally gifted things that that track to loneliness they had never had. And so like they they really didn't know how to answer my questions because they, they couldn't get it. And my theory about this, my you know, based on an N of two, is they were seen um, more off more than most of us were. And so it's not like an occasion when somebody really gets you. It's not like this huge break in the loneliness feeling. Um, it's just how life goes. And I think that's how it is for a lot of people who are closer to the norm, that they have mirrors much like everybody else's. But I think in, in the populations we talk about, absolutely that, that loneliness is key and it comes with 
being misseen and not seen and just not being able to be all of you in the world. I'm thinking about your interview with um, Nadia on Unleash Monday, but you were talking about how giftedness, like, the, you know, some people call giftedness a social construct, but for those of us who are gifted, it's like our lived experience. I know that I'm not capturing that exactly how you said it, but that it really struck me when you like when you made that remark on her podcast, because I think that's so true. You know, you have a lot of people who kind of look at the experience of giftedness from this academic perspective. Um, they're often academics themselves kind of, you know, talking about it abstractly from a distance, even if they were gifted themselves. And yet, for those of us who work with people in practice, especially adults, like we see all of the messiness of giftedness. We see that it's, it's not about achievement. It's not about what you're doing in a classroom somewhere or at your job. Even it's who you are like day to day in the world. And this is really complicated. The idea of being seen for who you are when you're so different, when you're, a you know, an extreme outlier, especially I know that for PG people, and especially PG2E people, it really is a treasure to have even one other person who really gets you. Yeah, I would completely agree with, with all of that. I think the lived experience piece, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in psychology. I'm interested in the subjective experience of, of people who don't necessarily get their subjective experience validated right? That's really what we're talking about to some extent. And it happens for other neurodivergent folks, other kinds of neurodivergencies, I think have the same thing. So you've got like the medical model of autism, for instance, and then you've got hashtag actually autistic. And they're putting out two very different points of view about what what autism is and what it looks like and what the, you know, what that means. Um, And I think it's kind of the same thing in giftedness. We've got the educational model, and then we've got the psychological model that really sort of define the concept almost in two different places. They're just, they're, they're talking about two different things um, to me. So sometimes those two concepts overlap and sometimes they don't, but I find the lived like, because we work, like you said, we're not up in an academic tower. We're down here with the people. Um, I find it much more useful to you know approach all of this from that psychological subjective experience which don't forget intensity so like all of those not seen missing moments you're going to feel more intensely um, if you've got adhd or, or something similar you might have rejection sensitivity dysphoria right so you're experiencing all of those things as even deeper cuts creating even deeper loneliness this actually is a kind of a good segue into talking about i would wanted to talk about overexcitability and neurodivergence a little bit, you know, because you work with ADHDers in your work a lot. I mean, you are an ADHD coach too, like specifically. And so I kind of wanted to talk with you about what you see in ADHDers from like the overexcitability perspective. You know, now that we, like, now that it's easier for us to talk about overexcitability as like, a part of these different types of neurodiversity. I just wanted to kind of talk about that with you because this is your coaching clientele, like twice exceptional adults. And so what thoughts do you have about how useful or not is Dabrowski's theory in your work? So I am really grateful for the work that you've done 
bringing over excitabilities out of just the gifted sphere. Because I look at ADHD, I look at autism, you know, some of some of dysgraphia, some of um, dyslexia, and I see overexcitabilities. I mean, autism is literally a more sensitive nervous system. Like it's a nervous system that's built differently, which to me, the way I understand overexcitability is one piece of it physiologically is that we have a more sensitive nervous system. Like, are those two things different? What do you see in your work or, you know, how useful are these constructs or the theory in your work? I find them incredibly useful. I don't name them very often because most of the people I work with don't necessarily identify even with gifted, let alone ready to hear a whole theory about themselves that may or may not be relevant to what they're doing. So as a coach, my job is to focus on what does the client want to accomplish? What changes do they want to make in the time that I'm working with them? It so happens that the changes they want to make usually end up doing a deeper transformation. And so I'm always sort of looking for the, the, where Dabrowski is showing up in that. You know, I have, I have a bunch of developmental models in my head all the time. And it's where do those things overlap and what does that tell me about this particular person, this particular brain? So I find it really useful. And then especially every once in a while when you come upon someone who is ripe for a disintegration or you can see them moving just so you can just watch the evolution through the levels and support them. You know, when I can be explicit about it, that's really freeing and fun. Um, Most of the time I'm not explicit about it, but people have asked me before, like, well, how do I separate my giftedness and my ADHD and my autism? Because those often co-occur. And, you know, how do I, how do I know where, where this, what looks like an overexcitability is coming from? And because it looks like a symptom in ADHD, it looks like, you know, a manifestation of autism and it looks like an overexcitability. And because I'm a coach and I'm, you know, present and forward looking mostly, I kind of go, does it matter where it comes from? How does this impact what you want to do? How does this impact who you want to be? Like that seems more important than its origin story. And I think part of it's because it may have the same origin story like you're talking about. I think Dabrowski is showing up all the time, even if he's not named. I can't help but wonder what other models you find most useful in your work, too. Just because I know you have a bunch of them in your head. And so, you know, let's stretch ourselves and talk about ones that aren't Dabrowski and his theory for a change, if you don't mind. No, absolutely. So I loosely hold Keegan's subject-object theory. I like, my favorite is constructive developmentalism. So Cook Gruder's work, which is an extension of Lovinger's work. Um, I think that concept of how much complexity can you hold at a given time and that being developmental really informs my understanding of my clients, um, even though they don't know that. Dabrowski is, is really a framework that I am using in my head quite a bit. Erickson, you know, I'm listening for what happened early that that may have impacted how things are going now. And like, where is that? I'm not digging into that wound as a coach because I'm not a therapist, but being aware of that and how can that show up? So, you know, the oldies but goodies mostly. And then really Cook Gruder and Dabrowski are my two, you know, ones that are often in the forefront. One thing that I feel like is very unclear to the public is the difference between working with a coach and a therapist. Um, And since we have you here and you're a coach, I wonder if we can just talk a little bit about that difference 
like, I just feel like lately, um, a lot of people who are therapists who work with the gifted, especially want to be calling themselves coaches because it's a, a way to get around the restrictions of licensure. If you're a therapist, you know, it's, it's tough because technically as a therapist, you can only do therapy in the state if you're in the United States where you've been licensed. And so that's extremely limiting. It's different though. Like just calling yourself a coach doesn't make you a coach. So can we talk just for a moment about like the skill set of coaching compared to, you know, being a therapist? I uh, love that you asked this question. You want to talk about this. Emma mentioned in the beginning, I am a credentialed coach with the International Coaching Federation, which is the main credentialing body um, in North America. It's also worldwide, but there are some other ones in Europe. It's got about 50,000 members right now. 40,000 of them are credentialed coaches. So there's a lot of us doing it according to the core competencies of the code of ethics that we have. Because we are not licensed and we're not regulated, this is what we have, right? So this is how people can know this is, this is what I'm going to get. But the different skill sets, I think some therapists use some of the same skills as coaches, but the way that it's easiest to think about it to me is therapists mostly are going to go back and look at things like trauma. Um, you know, what is the source of depression? What were some family things going on? They're, but they're looking into the past and, as I understand it, kind of helping you live with it in the present, Right. What's a different perspective you can take? How can you have this impact you less? Um, you know, how can you move past this or learn the skills that you need to not be codependent in your next relationship or whatever it may be? Coaches are explicitly solution focused. So when I, um, I'm looking at from now, and what's going on now, and where do you want to be? So it's very present and future focused. Um, the way that I do that is I come from the assumption that my client is creative, resourceful, and whole. So a lot of therapists hold the pathological model because that's what's taught and that's what's learned. And I understand that. Um, in coaching, we don't. We assume that you are actually capable of, of solving this. It's just going to be a little easier with a coach. We'll speed you up because we ask questions, usually open-ended questions, that spark something new you know, kind of get you out of the circle of thinking in your head where you think you've asked yourself all the questions because darn it, I'm a gifted person. I'm a bright person. Like I'm sure I've asked all the questions. I'm used to being right, but you're stuck in the circle. And the way I describe it is like, I'm the thing that comes across, like my question sometimes will open that circle, like just a little pop around the circumference and allow some spark to come out into a new part of your brain. And suddenly there's a realization of something new, a bigger awareness. And then it becomes, the, the, you know, sort of the key part, I think, to coaching is that's one part of the two kind of sides that we balance is that evoking awareness. That's our seventh core competency. And the eighth, the last one is facilitating growth. And it really means, you know, the way we've defined it, it means action. So I'm taking that awareness and saying, okay, you know, we've, we've worked with this, we're, we're settling into this awareness. What do you want to do about that? And that's a big part of it is there needs to be practical, pragmatic movement in a direction. That direction is, is set by the client at the very beginning of the engagement. And it's also a bound, time-bound engagement. Um, 
So we have we are aiming to get to this change by this time. And if we don't, then we can add a session or we can subtract a session or whatever. But like that's that's where we're headed. Um, so having that, you know, direction, um, some exploration, but exploration that turns into action that gets you moving in the direction that you want to move. Um, and I think this happens with some therapists, but if you have a coach, at least an ICF credentialed coach, this is what you're going to experience. Thanks so much for explaining that so well. That was really, it's interesting to me to think about the difference. You know, I've worked with a coach and I've been trained to be a therapist and not a coach. And so, you know, I feel like I have a pretty decent understanding of the differences personally because of my own experiences with you know, both of these ways of working with people and of course, as a client, but um, it's really interesting to me because like, for me, I feel like my, my work with people now is like, I can't help but think about everybody from like a Dabrowskian framework. I mean, I just can't help myself, but there are other frameworks that I love in my work too. And one of them is relational cultural theory. I would love to do a whole episode about RCT at some point because I love this as a part of my practice. For me, I think that the thing that I offer my clients that is most special is that I really care about the relationship with my clients. Like for me, that's probably, you know, one of the most important things is having the experience of mutual empathy and trying to like be a safe person who can help them heal like relationship trauma. This is kind of becoming an area of expertise for me personally. And what I'm hearing from you is that that's really different than what you're talking about. Like you are solution focused and it's not that I'm not with my clients, but it just, you know, it's hard to think of it as like time bound, <laughs> you know, like it's something that we're like trying to, to be speedy about or efficient about in any way, even though in some ways, of course, you want to, you don't want people to be your client forever, just because, you know, from in my practice, like it's all self pay. And so I don't want people to have to spend a lot of money to get well with me. And I really want to get them on their own path, like as soon as possible. But I don't know, it's interesting to talk about this stuff, at least for me. I mean, hopefully our listeners will will find it interesting. Yeah, what you just said about um, having the relationship with your clients and that being key, I think that's true for coaching too. And there have been those studies that show that it doesn't matter what kind of therapy happens, it's the relationship with the therapist that actually um, can predict, you know, how much better or how much the person moves from where they are to where they want to be. Um, and I think that's probably true with coaches too. The one thing I say, even before credential and training and, and all of those kinds of things, is you want fit. And I think that's, you know, we all know that's true for a therapist. Those of us who have found our therapist, it's like been amazing um, and had some that were not quite the fit. But I think that part of fit, if this goes back to being seen, like some of what I do with my clients is just fit, like stand there and reflect them to themselves with a straight mirror and say, this is great. Like, you're absolutely OK just this way, you know. And so helping them stop the self-judgment and develop more self-compassion along the way. So when I describe what happens, that is what happens. But but it's along the way, there is also transformation. I, I recently had a client who, who rolled off who 
came to me, basically she wanted to make sure she got her dishes done, clean out the doom room, and keep her car clean. And at the end of our engagement, she was like, I actually appreciate myself with ADHD. I want to shout it to the rooftops. I thought it was something that I needed to manage, but it's really just part of me. And I'm so excited to write this children's book that I didn't even remember that I was going to do. And it's going to be all that. It's like, she also got her dishes done. Um, so we accomplished what she <laughs> asked. That. And there's a transformation that's difficult to explain. But it's funny how people who have been through good coaching like this will often come back for more coaching. Because now, they've under- now they understand where what's happening, what this is all about. I was just going to offer a perspective on the whole therapy versus coaching thing that comes from totally outside of that. So I'd, I'd take it from a business analyst perspective in that, Christy, you were talking about solution mode. Sometimes when you're trying to solve problems, particularly in a business or, you know, in change management, what the problem is, is reasonably straightforward. So you write out your problem statement, you know, this is happening in this area of the business and then you can go straight into solution design. Whereas other times that you go, this is happening in the business, but we don't understand why. So now we've got to go back and look at data and look backwards. And I think like there's value in both those approaches, depending on the complexity of the issue. And sometimes when there's something happening in your life now, it's easier to define the problem. Whereas if you've got things that are rooted in your past, where therapy goes, it does require that sort of deep analysis. So I wouldn't, I think both approaches are are valid depending on the, the nature of the problem that you're trying to solve. Sometimes you can just go, whack, here's the problem. Okay, let's go into solution mode. Other times you've got to dig back and figure out why things are happening. So from my perspective, I think they're both, they both have a useful purpose. I love it when my coach clients have therapists, you know, Chris and I have shared a client once or twice and it's, been amazing because she does a whole different kind of work than I do. I love when my clients also have therapists. The therapists, as I think of it, dig, right? Dig into that trauma and and pull it out and take a look at it and all of that. And I call what coaches do dipping. So we don't go directly to solution. There's still some awareness that needs to come out. Um, As I tell my my ADHD students, um, people who are training to be ADHD coaches, and I'm always telling them time management is never about time management. Somebody comes to you and says, I have to get my calendar in order. It's like, let's look at what the barriers are to getting there in the first place. So there's that, but it really just dips, um, whereas therapy digs. I don't know if that makes sense to people who are not in my brain. It does. It does. And I love when my clients have coaches too, because I think like what you described in your coaching work, what like what you're really helping people do is like take action, like you said. I mean, and so just from a Dabrowskian perspective, you know, you think about like the third factor. Well, the third factor, dynamism, isn't just thinking about making a decision, right? It's it's about conscious, deliberate decision making, but it's more than that. It's also making the decision of what's more yourself or less yourself and putting it into action in the world. And so really the great thing about working with a coach is you know, getting the guidance around taking the steps that you need to take to to do the transforming, you know, work or to get on the other side of that work even, I guess. 
another thing that I heard from you, Tracy, in your description of what you do as a coach is that you're like awakening dynamism sometimes by allowing, like helping people, you know, get those like spark moments of realization. That's so important. Well, and it's so fun. <laughs> it is. It's so fun. Well, that's good. I mean, it, it should be fun. I think that if you're not enjoying your work when you're doing this kind of work with people, it probably comes through with your clients. I, I would think that's true. I think it's hard to find a fit with someone who doesn't want to be there and doesn't, you know, isn't interested in what happens to you. So that's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to have to add that to my framework of like, where do the, where are the dynamisms that are awaking in this person? I've been wanting to discuss this unpublished book by Dabrowski called Developmental Psychotherapy. And in that book, he talks about awakening dynamisms and clients and that to me is really interesting. And of course, Frank pointed out that he also talks about when not to do it, which is interesting. You know, um, there's a lot to say about all of that. And I don't feel <laughs> I don't feel prepared to talk about this book tonight. But um, just there's so much that we haven't explored yet in Dabrowski's work that we can apply in our work now that it's exciting to me. And so I don't know. There are many more conversations to be had about all this stuff, that's for sure. Well, I think Frank makes a good point, and it's something that I'm thinking of um, at times with my clients, is like if if we peel this Band-Aid away or if we, you know, dig through this, dip through this, are is it okay to, like, are they okay before they leave my session, right? Like, are they back in a stable position? Because sometimes awakening those dynamisms and then you send them off into the world and it's like, I don't know what to do now because my whole framework just shifted. And so I think sometimes handling with care, right. Um, around that kind of thing. But I think also like, just want to throw in there. We do a lot of experiments in coaching, which I think relates to finding yourself in the world is, you know, who do you want to be in the world? Like, go try this version on, go try that version on. Um, I think that feeds into that development piece of Dabrowski. So, um, but yeah, I do think about the same thing Frank was thinking about, like there are times when it's okay. And there are times when the person, it doesn't quite, isn't quite ready to manage all of that. There's a little bit of me making some decisions for the client, which is not really what we do in coaching, but it's sort of safekeeping. I'm sure you must do the same thing in therapy. That totally makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, you do have to be careful. You don't want to force somebody to go where they're not ready to go yet or to awaken something in them that they're not ready to to deal with yet, for sure. So I have a question for both of you on that note. We're talking about neurodiverse people who see the world differently um, and maybe feel unseen, and we're talking about difficult awakenings in people. With that in mind, like people aren't going about their lives in a bubble, right? And normally they've got relationships that they're trying to maintain in their life, uh, and those relationships might not be with other gifted or 2A or neurodiverse people. So, you know, they might be feeling that unseen issue like in close relationships, even with like partners and spouses. So I'm wondering what your approach is um, to either coaching or providing therapy or whatever, or you know, your advice in general of, you know, how do people who are now coming at the world from a different perspective or a newly shifted perspective because they're experiencing some dynamisms, what advice do you give to those people about having a relationship or maintaining 
a relationship with someone who maybe doesn't see the world the same way they do because arguably the difficulty of not being seen on the neurodivergent side of the fence has to go both ways because if someone who's neurotypical can't understand our experience, neither can we understand you know, what it's like for someone who maybe doesn't have overexcitabilities. Like you can't put yourself inside someone else's head. So what would your advice be to those people with dealing with someone who's not like them um, and trying to maintain that functional relationship, you know, particularly in the middle of some sort of shift? So when, so I don't usually advise, but if I did, this is where the Gruder constructive develop, developmentalism work. That's why this is in the forefront of my mind because of that level of complexity to hold. So oftentimes people who are not experiencing these, you know, Dabrowskian movements um, are not having these new awarenesses. It's sort of not necessarily in their capacity, you know, according to Dabrowski. They can't hold the complexity of what we're doing, and it's unreasonable to expect them to, right? So the key phrase for me is meet them where they are. I think that we are better equipped to meet people where they are, like once we've developed past that level or that stage, right? So I think that there's there's that to it. But meeting people where they are is a big effort sometimes. It's sort of translating yourself into a version that can be understood. Um, it's not necessarily showing all of yourself. It's, a, you know, a little bit masking, a little bit self-preservation, a little bit, if I want them to understand at any, you know, at any level, I need to say it in a way that fits with their worldview. And I agree, Emma, that we can't necessarily like understand the experience of being neurotypical. But I think that the more complexity you can hold, the higher up you are in Jabrowski's scale, the more, you know, we're really good at perspective taking better than the average bear. And so I think we can get closer to that than they can get to us. And I kind of think of it like Spider-Man, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Like it's our job to get there. Um, that's a lot of responsibility. And sometimes you don't want to do it. So you don't do it with everybody. It's a matter of who's, who's worth the energy, really, of explaining yourself to. Um, and I don't love my answer to this question. It's the best I've got right now, but I am continuously looking for how can that be better? Because I, I think it's, I think you can make do with what I just said, but I don't think that it is great for development or great for, you know, your own self awareness, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm hoping Chris has a better answer than I have. Well, I don't know that I have a better answer. I I could add to what you've already said, but that really makes sense to me. I mean, I think one thing is that it there's a huge range too in like the kinds of people we're dealing with. And so, you know, if we're talking about somebody's partner, that's a different kind of understanding that you have to reach compared to like a friend even, or, you know, some more distant relation. You know, when I am trying to help somebody with a really close relationship like that, I mean, I remind people to like have compassion for themselves and for the other person and to always try to maintain some level of empathy there. Like you said, Tracy, I mean, we it's true, like the perspective taking is, is a, a major part of it. But yeah, just being kind to ourselves and remembering to be kind to the person who we may be frustrated with because we're not understanding each other is really important. And it 
it can make everything a little easier, even when it feels hard to maintain that compassion on both ends. If you're the kind of person who is capable of a lot of complexity, you're neurodivergent, you're going to always be kind of having to figure out and like navigate social interactions and, and understanding people from your perspective where it's easier for you to get them in some ways, even if you don't know exactly what it's like to be them. I think one thing that helps in the compassion compartment too, and also in what you just said, because I totally agree with what you said. It's exactly right. Like if you want to be in the world, you have to learn how to be in the world and decide when you want to activate that effort and when you don't. Um, but one thing that really helps me when I'm doing that is also my like watchword for, for coaching in general, which is to come curious and stay curious. If I'm curious about the other person's point of view, if I'm curious about what's going on and how they're seeing me and, you know, or how they're seeing the world, I'm going to have an easier time having compassion for them, empathy, that connection. So, you know, a lot of us gifted folks, we have intellectual overexcitabilities. We are curious about everything. So get curious about what's going on around you because you will have to, there has to be some sort of shift. When one person shifts, if the system doesn't shift around them, it's really hard to maintain that change. So you're right, Chris, like when it's a partner or a boss, even what, you know, any of those sort of things, the system needs to acknowledge the growth in some way. But I think that the the I think curious is kind. Brene Brown says clear is kind and she's right. But I also think curious can be kindness um, and really help bridge that gap between different experiences of the world. I love that. I think you're absolutely right about that. It really does help to be curious. And in fact, that's, you know, I had conversations with a couple of kids at camp this summer about that. Like if you're struggling to have conversations with other people, rather than thinking about what you can tell them or what information you can share with them, like stop thinking like that and get curious about them. Ask them what they're interested in, you know, try to figure out where they're coming from. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to talk with the kids about that in like a friendship workshop and kind of position it. And I swear, I'm sure that you were in my head because I've heard you say that so many times about being curious. So thank you. <laughs> Sorry to have taken a residence there. I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing, honestly. It helps me. It helps me in my practice to um, to learn about other frameworks and other ways of working with people. You know, I never want to think that I have like all the answers and it's just this way. And yeah, so I, I appreciate learning from you. Well, the feeling is mutual, my friend, because the work that you do is so important in our world and growing into more worlds. And so I just, you know, soak up everything that you have to present to all of us and appreciate it so much. Um, it certainly informs my practice and helps me understand my clients better, understand me better, understand what to do better. So I agree. I don't have all the answers. As a matter of fact, in coaching, we say we don't have any of the answers. The client has the answers. So the curiosity is just, it's just how you do it, it's how you get there. Well, I appreciated all those kind words, but I mean, I'm just, I just feel like I'm just doing my best and my little part in all of this. It's already like, can you believe that? Like, it's already almost an hour. I feel like this episode has been so easy and like we're already at an hour. 
Well, that's lovely. Just like your other <laughs> guests have said, like it's it's we just got into conversation, and it's so lovely to have this kind of discussion and this level discussion with people who are you know in your same in a similar and close enough worldview, and 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 you know because we can't ever share the exact same one, but close enough, right? Flat mirrors. So I just appreciate this time. It's it, this is so fun. I love that flat mirrors, you know, as opposed to funhouse mirror. <laughs> I like that. I mean, you get it, right? Like as soon as you put that picture totally. on the screen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. Yep. That's right. The work that you know, you guys do talking to people on a one-on-one basis and even some of the stuff that we do here with the podcast and you know, putting your theoretical information into a contextualized, relevant easy format whether it be speaking to the person about you know their own issues and using the framework as you said Tracy you don't really talk about the framework or use the names you just make the applicability there for them or you know simplifying and and making the framework accessible like we try to do here on the podcast it's all important because when someone does get curious, whether it's about trying to understand themselves or trying to understand someone else, like if we can make that easier to absorb and easier to apply to real life, I guess, you know, it's going to be more useful, more helpful. Emma, I always so appreciate your observations. I just, I just really appreciate your observations on, you know, we're down here in, in the, in the like stew of it. And I feel like you come in and like, shine a light and just cut through the, the muck and go, well, here's what's really going on. So um, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think in part I do it to try to simplify things in my own mind, but you know, if it helps, it helps. <laughs> Thanks. I love it too. I always appreciate Emma's insights and, and especially like just the real world way that you always like, I don't know, bring things down to earth. Cause it's true that sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in, the abstract theorizing, but it's important. Like the most important thing is applying the theory. In my opinion, it's, there's been enough theorizing and speculation about everything over the years. I think that comes from my previous jobs. That's just what I do is tra- making that translation. And that's what you were alluding to earlier, Tracy. Sometimes, you know, someone's got to take the big complex technical stuff and put it in plain language at some point. Well, That's you do right. that and do a beautiful job of it, Emma. So I appreciate you. Oh, I'm blushing. Oh, I was blushing earlier. So we're even. So, well, I, I mean, I guess we're good. I mean, we if everybody's have to blushed, do our little wrap up. Yeah. If everybody has blushed, I think <laughs> we're like, we hit all the points. We hit all the points. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tracy, for joining us. Like it's been a very easy um, informative and insightful conversation, I think. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Well, thank you. I agree. Conversation is only as good as, you know, everyone in the conversation. So this has been a delightful time to spend with you. And thank you for making me feel so welcome and, and comfortable so quickly. Um, I really appreciate it. You all are doing a really great service here. Oh, thank you. And thanks so much for joining us, Tracy. This was wonderful. And thank you too, Chris. It's always a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners as well. We always appreciate you joining us on the podcast. The Positive Disintegration Podcast is funded by the Dabrowski Centre. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider donating through the link in the show notes. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating or leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic self.